0: Hello, and welcome to Game Like Training Radio, powered by the Golf Science Lab, where we'll help you set up practice and learning environments to actually help you play your best game on the course and not on the range. Hey, I'm one of your hosts, Cordy Walker. And I'm your co-host, Matthew Cook. All right, we're excited to be here with Dr. Fran Pirazzolo. He is a psychologist who's worked with all types of athletes from the Yankees, with baseball, to he's worked with, with golfers. And so we're excited to talk with him today about learning and about practice. So looking forward to this. Dr. Fran, how are you doing? Hi,
1: I'm doing great. Cordy, how about you?
0: Things are going well. So let's start with kind of a core question of how do we develop and not derail learning? And let's say, especially with juniors who are, are just getting into a game or sport, and we're talking about golf here, but like, how do we develop and not derail? Cordy,
1: that's a huge topic, which would take several hours to cover, but
0: let me briefly
1: try to touch on a few very important things. Mainly, the biggest issue is that very few of us understand learning. There is a lot of very active research going on around the country, mostly in universities, which again shows that people do not practice very good habits about learning. They tend to uh, mass and block learning that is not to uh, have a variable kind of a practice routine. Um, they tend to want to make it easy and mindless, uh, which doesn't help at all. And we have these buzz phrases like practice the way you play or play the way you practice, which I think suggests to those learners that, you know, you don't want to be doing a lot of thinking and interfere with your motor performance. And that's really not what learning is all about. The recent research shows that if it isn't difficult for you, there really is no new learning. And I'll just kind of end this little section by saying that when we think about learning and constructing a good Mm -hmm. practice routine, we should think about, you know, the endpoints, which are the retention of the information and the knowledge and skills, as well as the possible transfer to other environments or a changed environment. Now, what happens if we put the ball below your feet or it's windy or something like that? So there's a lot of work to be done, you know, in golf. And I just think that, you need to pay attention to what some of these brilliant researchers have shown about the use of what we call desirable difficulties, but again, also making it hard on yourself. Otherwise, the brain changes that we're looking for
2: that underlie learning don't ever happen. You mentioned desirable difficulties, and I've tried to do a lot of reading on Dr. Robert Bjork's work. I know you and Robert work alongside each other quite a lot, and I know you've done a lot of stuff in the past with some other researchers. And uh, I can't help but remember you telling me about how you, Robert, and a few others were a small group of people that went around the world and, and looked more into these other techniques that people had come out with about learning. And you really found a few key principles or concepts onto how the brain learns and you found some that really weren't helpful could you tell us about that experience that you had going around the world looking at all these different ways people were saying we learn certainly Matthew really was one of the best experiences of my academic career being
1: appointed to the National Academy of Sciences Committee on Techniques to Enhance Human Performance and what that was was a committee of Scientists who were charged by the Army Research Institute, uh, the, the Army Research Institute is, um, and the National Academy of Sciences are charged with the responsibility of advising the military about, you know, whether they're doing things the, you know, the best way uh, they can in training and and so on. At the time when we started our project, we were right in the middle of, you know, this, this so-called new army thing where the government had recognized that, you know, there were at least claims of new possibilities about learning, you know, and retention and transfer and all that. But they, of course, wanted to be very responsible about the training that they gave to new recruits. huge issue and of course they want to get it right they were hearing from entrepreneurs and business people who were marketing various techniques and you know the the sad fact of that is that people in business and in industry do not go through the same steps as we do in science or medicine you can't simply go into your kitchen and throw together some chemicals and put them in a, a bottle and say, you've got a cure for such and such a disease. It ha- the drug or mechanism has to be approved by various, um, you know, not industry, but it has to be approved by the people who take care of the approval of drugs. And we argued that, you know, because of the importance of these issues, that we should be using similar scientific steps that you really shouldn't be claiming that things work fast and better without any scientific empirical data. So we set about, you know, just examining every single claim that we could find and really it, it involved you know, the traditional performance enhancement techniques like visualization and meditation and prayer and, you know, some educational formulations, but also the new things that were coming, again, from industry. All sorts of, you know, claims uh, that, you know, had fancy sounding, scientific sounding names but the very fact was that when we applied the science to the claims they didn't hold water. Interestingly, most of the older techniques did hold up. And you know, we would review the thousands of studies on whether meditation improves performance, whether doing slow motion training or backward chaining or other techniques, whether they enhanced learning and performance. So I thought it was a very worthwhile exercise. Uh, it went on for, I don't know, 15 years, and we're trying to do a similar sort of thing in golf now, uh, although it's not certainly a regulatory group, just a bunch of interested scientists and teachers and practitioners who are interested in applying stringent scientific criteria, what they're doing to help young people, underprivileged kids, and just uh, the rest of us, sort of average people, learn the game better.
0: If you're enjoying this episode, head over to golfsciencelive.com slash better training and get four videos that we've put together to help you have a more game-like training learning environment. We'll dive into the specific things that you can do to get more out of the time that you spend on the range. Golfscienceslab.com slash better training. All right, let's get back to it.
2: So out of those 15 years and out of everything you found from the learning sciences and from the purpose of you and the, the rest of the team out there doing what you were doing, and now with you taking a more taking a different route into the, the golf world, I guess, what have you found? I might, I might be opening a can of worms here. What have you found from all of that research and all of the evidence, what have you found that proves to be the proves some of the biggest myths in golf?
1: Um, oh gosh, again, I would think as we said in the introductory little piece there, that things like massing practice as opposed to spacing it out over time is not a good idea. Things like interleaving, where you change up the task, the target, the engulf, the club, the target, um, the swing left to right versus right to left, all of that sort of stuff, those things really do produce better learning than massing and blocking. The ideas of... You know, the desirable difficulties certainly um, show up to have great validity. So the idea of sitting on the end of the range and just, you know, hitting balls to groove in this one swing in the hopes that it will always, you know, show up that way, it doesn't really help your uh, learning. It seems that, you know, the brain is a curious instrument in that it wants to see some change and it will reject doing the same thing over and over again. In fact, it's almost impossible at a very high level. Researchers have found that, you know, you can make or intend to make two of the exact same swings. And for various neurological uh, reasons, you don't. Because of the way The time lag works in the brain and because of things like, you know, enzymes and neurotransmitters and the delay times that happen. So you may see, you know, a strange shot when it really had nothing to do with what you intended to do, and it's like just an unreliable outlier. The other things, I guess just briefly, that always show up uh, the testing effect is a profound help in learning. That is, that uh, by simple testing, and that's not testing for categorization of where you stand in the, your fifth grade class or whatever, for, but testing on skills and and even knowledge. Pre-testing helps a great deal to activate the brain to learn the things that you. Are about to be presented with uh, a study that my son did at the University of Houston is illustrative of this point. He talked a University of Houston professor into giving, I think, four midterms, and uh, of course the kids didn't like that. And the another equally matched class that to just do their usual routine and have one midterm. And the simple fact of the matter was that the class which had the same average GPA as the other class, the class that got five midterms, the four midterms, had a letter grade higher average than the than the other group. And this plays out in golf in what we call mastery learning. That is, you should be almost every day testing yourself to see by whatever criteria are the ones that are like right at your level, the edge of your current ability. Say you, you try to hit four or five balls uh, inside 20 feet with a wedge from 100 yards, something like that. So with all of the uh, professionals um, that I work with and my University of Houston golf team, we do a lot of that. And then we try to then change the criteria to be harder and harder. And uh, there's probably no preparation that's better than that for illustrating the learning effects. So, you know, without belaboring, you know, all of the scientific points. There is an awful lot of very good research that we can we could be applying to our training that we're not uh, in golf. And um, I just think, again, we, uh, we get various reports about how the dismal outlook for golf. Uh, but the simple fact of the matter is that after, uh, except for very young people who have so much neuroplasticity and the players who are new to the game, it is rare to see handicaps change. And that's because of the training programs uh, that we um, usually fall back on.
0: So I'm really interested in this because I, I think it's, I think it's easier to see that good players need to be challenged and that that can accelerate their growth by pushing them to be uncomfortable. How do you do the same with, with new players. How do you accelerate skill development while still keeping them motivated to come back to the golf course when it's challenging in this kind of model, Fran?
1: Yeah, tricky proposition, isn't it, Corey? There are the mediating variables, as you're kind of pointing to, are the mental skills. And the mental skills over time, uh, time meaning the, the uh, progression of your game, change, and uh, the motivation to play initially is, you know, for fun, just pure fun, and get out for your child, for your buddies, and, you know, whack it around. But then your motivation changes after a while. Gosh, I want to make the high school team, uh, and I want to get a college scholarship, and I want to be the top player on tour, and so on and so forth. So the, the goals change. And... The responsibility falls then to teachers to be teaching these, you know, very sophisticated, you know, self-monitoring skills that mediate how we practice. It's no secret that, you know, again these things are related. Um, in high school, you you learn to find that. The people who are more highly motivated are the ones who are going to get the best grades, going to do the best work on the sports teams. So it the answer to your question, Cody, is not a simple one, but it would involve the teachers learning the different mental skills that would what activate the interest and the motivation to excel, you know, and we apply certain psychological tests to things like this, and we certainly find that conscientiousness, which is a fairly stable personality measure, plays a role. The people who are most conscientious, you know, get themselves out there and do the things they're supposed to be doing. There's a concept called the rage to master, which is that Uh, a person is just driven, you know, by passion to master something. And the more we cultivate those things, we live in a very, uh, this would be a personal opinion, I guess, but our Western culture is competitive, which turns out probably not to be the greatest thing. So we tend to reward ourselves or feel good when we beat others as opposed to when we focus on mastering something. As you imagine, for example, a great musician, you know, he's not waiting for any extrinsic motivational thing like for the whole symphony hall to clap or, you know, his paycheck. He's impressed with himself and pleased that he played a certain, you know, sequence to the best of his ability. And it's the same in golf, the person who, trying to master all the skills to a higher and higher level is the person that's going to, the person that's trying to be better today than he was yesterday is going to be, uh, you know, that great outlier um, who has tremendous achievements. People who are competitive tend not to want to lose, which is a horrible thing. Uh, They tend to frame things, you know, they they tend to, uh, you know, have more of a fear of failure They don't want to be, they don't want to try things because they might not be the uh, winner, you know, it might not look good right now, but, you know, in in another sort of learning culture, the culture of a growth mindset, you're interested in doing better and not embarrassed by, you know, mistakes that you make, you understand that that's, how humans learn. They make mistakes and they adapt. And if you're embarrassed and, and, you know, put off by the kinds of mistakes that you make, then you're probably not going to, you know, achieve very much. There are many, many tricky mental issues. And, you know, our taxonomy, for example, we're trying to define all of those and help uh, coaches understand how they should be developing pedagogical or, or, or teaching programs for each of those things so that their kids can excel. In studies that we have done, the shocking fact is that, you know, the most gifted of kids are not the kids who excel later in life. Um, and that is true across the board. In one study we did, we found that 4% of AJGA All-Americans went on to have successful careers in, in golf. But again, that is true of all areas. And so it would appear, I mean, that's great in the sense that it opens the options for many people in the meritocracy, but it's rather sad in that we all assume when we look around the room in a group of young, you know, gifted uh, people that these are the ones who are going to be doing the great things, you know, in adulthood. And and they're not because of these, you know, metacognitive things that uh, we're talking about. That was more than you wanted to hear. I am sure.
2: <laughs> no, that was great. Fran. It almost reminds me of when I was reading uh, Benjamin Bloom's book, the development of talent in young people, which is a book that everyone who's listening should, should go buy and read, but it, what you were saying, a lot of the things you were saying reminded me a lot of that book. So let's try to almost conclude everything we've discussed in this conversation. And I mean, everything you've done prior to this, could we conclude maybe one really important thing for golfers and coaches to go and apply into their, whether it's their coaching or whether it's their practice? Could you give us one really important thing that we could go away and apply? Well, one thing, I guess it just would be that
1: general disposition towards a growth mindset, towards, you know, change and improvement. I want to be better tomorrow than I am today. And the goals that you might set to recognize that, I think that would be a good start in any program, either of teaching or learning, to focus on that, as opposed to other more commonly discussed metrics of how many tournaments you won or how far you hit it or whatever. Bernhard Langer has been, he was my first client, and I'm happy to say we're still working very, very hard after 30, 40 years, but it would seem that the guy gets better at everything every year. So it would seem like he is that rare individual who has that incredible growth mindset where he's trying to improve himself. He's not satisfied with, you know, just uh, doing, and again, he doesn't uh, look at what others are doing to judge himself so much as, the mastery criteria of what he's able to do now and if he works harder in a mastery sense that he should be able to improve on that and all of the data suggests that that's true he's an inspiration and a, just a great man who you know he should be uh, just emulating as a, uh, a model an exemplar for our society
0: Thank you so much for sharing, Dr. Fran. If you're going to give a call to action for people or where they should learn more about you, where should we direct people to? Well, the first
1: thing I would say is they might take a look at... uh, There's a community of scholars who have uh, developed a uh, website to show some of this information. That's called lastinglearning.com. That would be a good educational resource for people.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, and I'm sure we'll uh, we'll hear more from you in the future. Thanks, Dr. Fran.
2: Thank you, Cordy. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks a lot, Fran.